Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Rick Zulo of Equal Partners. Uh, Rick, w- welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Eric. Excited to be here. So, so Rick, you, you uh, inspired me to go down the Carlotta Perez, uh, or you introduced me to the Carlotta Perez rabbit hole uh, because you said that her work has influenced your, your investment thesis. Um, why don't you talk about, about, about that and, and how it's inspired it? Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the core beliefs uh, uh, our, our firm Equal Ventures is that, you know, we're going through this, you know, once in a lifetime, once in a generation uh, transition in, uh, for a new phase in the innovation cycle. And I think a lot of thinking that supported that has come out of, you know, a book written, you know, almost 20 years ago by the socioeconomist Carlotta Perez called Technology Revolutions and Finan- Financial Capital. And we think that the core underpinnings of this theory are ultimately going to drive a lot of changes in the way that startups operate and a lot of the changes in the way that the venture industry are going to operate. So uh, it's obviously kind of a loaded message in, in saying that, but you know, one of the things that we found just utterly fascinating as Rich and I have been getting to know each other over what is now six, seven years has been this theory of how venture is going to change and how the face of entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurship is going to change. And no one has been better at predicting this than uh, Carlotta and doing that, you know, back in the early two thousands uh, is astounding to see some of the things that she predicted happening right in the market, right in society today. Totally. So let's give some sort of, uh, you know, if, if we, if we were Carlotta Perezians or, you know, big believers, you know, uh, a decade ago, how would that have informed our, our, our thesis in terms of what to invest in? Um, and, and how might that inform our thesis uh, today? Let's give first a historical context for how her thesis aligns with, you know, venture and startups in terms of the different phases we've gone through. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, seeing where we came from is the best way to see where we're going to be going. And, you know, Carlotta has basically broken out um, how we think about modern society and innovation and, you know, how society interacts with, you know, the financial intermediaries and, and technology um, and, you know, her, her basic core theory is that uh, modern history has been broken up into these innovation cycles where there's you know, every 50 to 70 years, some epochal, uh, you know, innovation that's so disruptive to the status quo that, you know, it changes the way that society operates and uh, with some form of transformative technology uh, that changes the way that society and industry operate. And, you know, we've seen this four or five times over the last couple hundred years, first with the Industrial Revolution, then with the age of steam and railways, and then, uh, you know, steel and electricity, and then, you know, more recently with the age of oil, auto, and, and mass production. And, and lastly, uh, kind of, you know, the, the seminal Big Bang uh, event for the age of information and telecommunications with the birth of the mass production microprocessor uh, from Gordon Moore and the team from Intel in the early 70s. And you know, basically each one of these innovation cycles has followed the same exact path through modern history. There's, you know, uh, kind of starts off with a insulation phase where it's all about the building blocks of that innovation, you know, occurring in some hyper-localized pod, you know, a group of innovators who are building the kind of infrastructure for that movement, you know, uh, you know, a group of financiers who are really speculating on the potential production value, the potential uh, of that technology, uh, who are supporting it. And these folks make 
incredible economic gains uh, based on that speculation. Uh, and, you know, this tends to lead to some type of market frenzy, but, you know, it's all about laying the groundwork for, for that movement. Um, you know, that midpoint through that cycle, we start to see something called the, the turning point. And this is where society is really struggling to digest or adapt to the power of the new technology. You know, we start seeing a camp of haves and have nots. And, you know, this leads to income inequality, disparity, job you know, displacement as the world tries to, you know, really adjust to this new technology paradigm. Uh, and this is usually coincided with huge bouts of populism, nationalism, some of the biggest wars that we've seen in modern history, you know, calls for antitrust regu uh, regulation. Um, and, you know, during the last stage of the cycle, the, the mass production cycle, you know, this is when the Great Depression and World War II happened. And, uh, you know, that was obviously a very, very scary time for, for humanity. Um, and these phases can go anywhere from, you know, a couple of years to, you know, a couple of decades. Um, you know, it seems pretty clear to us at Equal Ventures that, you know, we're starting to approach that turning point phase where we've gone from that installation of, of some really great technologists and, you know, some really innovative financiers backing, you know, great technology hubs, you know, coming out of Cambridge and Silicon Valley uh, um, and starting to see that tension build in society. And uh, as Rich and I were looking at each other and, you know, starting to realize that that was happening, uh, and we thought it started creating an opportunity. And it's amazing that, you know, even in the epilogue of Carlotta's book, you know, she predicts that there would be this massive polarization that we would start seeing in society, you know, back in all, you know, in 2002, as uh, society really struggled to, to, you know, deal with all this information uh, and, and some of the economic gains coming out of it. So, uh, the good news is that once we go through that kind of turning point and the dust settles and, you know, we start to see a transformation of society, which has historically coincided with the best bull runs and best economic prosperity, um, you know, that we've seen in modern history. And this is when, you know, we have the kind of the golden age post-World War II. Um, this is where we really start seeing the benefits of innovation, benefits of technology democratized across a much broader swath would go from speculative value to production value. And that's really about how do we go and make technology sweat? How do we make sure that the benefits of technology are really making society better, uh, you know, re resulting in better uh, economic standards for everybody? And we are of the personal belief that that's, you know, we're really at the cost of that happening. And uh, we wanted to structure our firm, our team, and our approach, you know, to be the ones that could cater to that next evolution of entrepreneurs deploying technology to society and industry to make those better, you know, rather than being the ones who are really focused on uh, investing in the building blocks of technology so that we could be the one to carry the torch forward into that movement. Yeah, and, and let, let's make this uh, uh, more concrete. What, what are sort of examples of companies or even, you know, sectors or subsectors that you, that wouldn't have been good investments, you know, 10 years ago, uh, or, or, but are good investments now? or you're starting to pay more attention to now. Yeah, and, and I think, um, you know, we, we probably need to, uh, you know, uh, uh, refine the scope a little bit more than just what are good sectors and what are bad sectors. But what we look for and where we think there's an opportunity um, today where there may not have been, you know, 10 years ago. 10 years ago, we would have considered something like insurance software or, you know, a marketplace for oil and gas field services. That would have seemed niche. And today we're seeing because technology has become so mainstream, it's become accessible. You know, we have a computer in the hands of nearly every individual in America and, you know, a majority of the folks in, in the globe um, that these opportunities are no longer niche. 
Um, so, you know, this is how companies like RigUp can be created, be, you know, tr you know, enormously transformative to the oil and gas value chain uh, by finding ways to actually reduce costs in the in supply chain, increase transparency, make the lives of rig wor workers better. Um, and that's something that I don't think could have been created, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So the way that we uh, and, and our core belief is, you know, let's go and find those industries that are demonstrating the aha internet moment, the, the moment that uh, there's such dynamic catalysts that they're gonna adopt technology at such a fast rate that it's gonna create real opportunity for economic production value, you know, rather than just kind of, you know, another tool uh, to integrate into their existing lives. And we think uh, we like to look for not only these markets that have, you know, significant change, but significant complexity where we feel like we are best compensated for, you know, taking our time to understand the industry and have authentic net networks in those industries. And we think that's actually a really different style of investing than someone who has a network, you know, catered to CIOs and CTOs or, you know, great startup engineers and operators. Uh, a little bit different than, you know, do you know the team from ExxonMobil and, you know, Halliburton or do you know, um, you know, how the insurance industry works, you know, back and forward, like, uh, you know, via connections to folks like Aon and AIG or, you know, can you do that in transportation logistics and, you know, do you actually have authentic value add uh, as well as the networks in the transportation logistics industry, which is another one of those sectors that we think is just experiencing rip and replace of infrastructure, a lot of dynamic change is obviously one of the biggest, most complex markets out there. Totally. And and I'm curious how you think about incumbents versus startups in these spaces, because we saw, you know, as, as sort of the rise of mobile came, that actually the incumbents, you know, Facebook, uh, Google, et cetera, were actually able to get stronger uh, as a result of, of that, that platform shift. How, how are you thinking about, uh, you know, what will determine whether the incumbents can get stronger or, or whether the startups will disrupt them? Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to a presence of market power. So, you know, you look at the resources that um, something like Facebook or Google had extremely strong market positioning, you know, obviously, um, you know, bordering on monopolistic power. Uh, as we look at the industries uh, that, that we get excited about, you know, we try to make sure that we're understanding the value chain and saying, okay, here are the folks that are disruptable and here are the folks that we should be able. And, you know, generally there's in any given industry, there's, you know, some of the stakeholders make a lot of sense to enable and some of them make a lot of sense to disrupt. Um, so we try to make sure that we take a, you know, fine, uh, fine tuned understanding to say, all right, um, for something like the insurance industry, we actually have taken a somewhat contrarian belief that we don't want to disrupt uh, the legacy brokers like Ann Marsh and Willis, who you know are worth you know collectively over a hundred billion dollars. You know that it actually makes a lot more sense to enable them, given the kind of the size and scope of that population and the relationships that they have with their clients, and you know the fact that you know the the rip and replace of that as movement is unlikely. Uh, but the technology adoption rate of those players is extremely low. So you know we be, believe big. Uh, and kind of enabling those folks. And on the carrier side of the equation, you know, we believe that there's some opportunities for disruption, that you can actually really bend the risk curve, bring new technology tools, and you know, see the nexus of a digital and financial product by bringing them together, uh, you know, end up achieving economic results that are just not possible within the existing insurers the, the way they are today. So you know, uh, we don't like to have a one-size-fits-all approach, which means that we need to go with a relatively slow and measured pace to the way that we're thinking about these markets. 
Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, the trend is to, or what's popular is to sort of, you know, create a, you know, full stack, vertically integrated, just new, like, uh, you know, uh, forward in healthcare or, you know, Oscar health insurance, like is just to sort of want to disrupt, but you're saying, no, actually sustaining innovations can, you know, there are certain times where they make more sense and can be, you know, really fantastic businesses. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, again, it's not one size fits all. We think uh, there are times where the full stack approach makes a ton of sense. Uh, one of the very first investments we made in our, in our fund is a company called Block Renovations. And, you know, they're building a full stack approach to, you know, reinventing the, uh, you know, general contracting you know, process and the economics that they're achieving, you know, are really, really compelling. Uh, you know, they're, <laughs> Uh, the, the scope of the players that they're going at after are relatively small and, you know, they've been able to bend the economic equation really, really heavily. Uh, and there's real economic modes there that, you know, any value investor looking at that would say, wow, like that's, that's compelling. So, you know, we think the market conditions were, you know, appropriately applicable for, you know, that team to do that. And, you know, um, Coda uh, and Luke are just absolutely phenomenal operators. So, you know, they've certainly executed on that vision. But, you know, there's a lot of other companies that we see in the market who are attacking incumbents with, you know, not much more than you know, digital lipstick on legacy infrastructure. And we think those are some of the companies that, you know, are going to get in trouble. And obviously, we're seeing elements of that bear out in the market with, you know, WeWork and others, uh, which, you know, um, you know, something that, that we've been thinking about a lot over the course of the last year or two. And say more about that. How is sort of WeWork or everything surrounding you know, the, the paradigm behind it uh, evolved your thinking? Yeah, so you know, for us, again, it goes not to looking at where the economics are today, but where the economics could be. And one of the things that we fundamentally believe is that startups are engines for capital. And with that, you know, you're, you're making a thoughtful decision around taking venture capital to develop an economic mode uh, that when you raise venture money, it shouldn't just be about growth. It should be around how that venture capital is enabling you to have stronger unit economic positioning than your competitors, you know, whether it's network effects or economies of scale, you know, one way or another that you're using that capital, you know, to demonstrate that you have, you know, a sustainable and permanent competitive edge on your competitors. And as we've looked at, you know, some of those players in the market, uh, you know, won't say individual names, uh, we've seen them using capital solely for kind of customer acquisition. And that works when you're a company with 90% gross margins or whether, you know, you're you know, a you know, company that actually does have network effects. What it doesn't work for is when you're a company that has really thin gross margins um, that's competing against incumbents and that acquiring market share doesn't really do much for you because it just means that, you know, you're racking up losses uh, with worse economic performance than the incumbents, uh, you know, driving up customer acquisition rates, uh, but ultimately not establishing any type of permanence or any type of network effect or any type of moat with that. And we've seen that fairly persistent as folks are coming into some of these industries and, you know, realizing that things like loss ratios and insurance really matter, or, you know, looking at companies in the trucking industry and realizing, you know, that, that, um, you know, there's certain dynamics in that marketplace that, that lend themselves probably more towards brokerages than marketplaces. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, an opinion. We'll, we'll see how the market bears out on that. Uh, obviously some of these companies have raised a lot of money, but, 
at least for us as a firm, like we're really looking to go and say, all right, uh, we think that this company will have incredible value because, you know, it's been able to demonstrate that it can make its claims losses 20% lower than anybody else in that category. And that's what the private equity and hedge fund and corporate guys are going to be excited about buying this company and saying, hey, if we can do this, it'll have tremendous production value, economic production value across our entire company, you know, rather than just being, um, you know, a means to acquire customers or, you know, a better brand experience, which, you know, really takes some time to understand uh, the kind of actual underlying fundamentals of those companies, which, you know, is the reason why we think that you can't be a generalist at seed stage and, you know, uh, trying to pick these companies out. Uh, that you really need to be focused and have, you know, a great network of individuals who can, you know, advise and say, this is actually something really special. This is something that, you know, uh, the incumbents would get really, really excited about uh, rather than just solely and only a great product experience. Totally. And, and you, you have here in your thesis that you know, legacy mar- markets operate differently. The landscape, these opportunities will look different than those of the past, breaking away from typical venture patterns with a new class of innovators. We, we've talked, we gave a couple examples, maybe go deeper there. If there's another example of an industry that comes to mind where, where legacy art markets will operate differently, perhaps than they, they have before or sort of, uh, you know, let's expand more on the thinking behind that. Yeah. So, you know, my prior firm, LightBank, the first six companies I've funded were in six different states. Um, so, you know, uh, I would say, you know, almost exclusively, all those founders came from, were first-time founders. A lot of them had never worked at startups before, and some of those companies, you know, were the most successful ones that had worked at. So, you know, uh, for us, we think really this new phase represents two things. You know, one, it requires a different set of capabilities to look at some of these companies. And we talked a little bit of that about, you know, taking technology, evaluating technology risk and and the quality of product versus uh, evaluating kind of the unit economic production and modes that that, that are in place. But I also think that this is really also about the founder. So, you know, I think Rich and I, you know, had uh, are deeply passionate about diversity and, you know, diversity means a lot of things to, to, to both of us. Um, but, you know, cognitive diversity is a big part of that. And as we look at what the traditional kind of prototypical founder has been uh, from the venture mindset, we think it, the, the founders tomorrow have the opportunity to look very, very different than the founders today. And that means folks coming from new geographies, folks coming from non-prototypical backgrounds, uh, folks coming who may not have as much technology acumen as, you know, technology uh, competency has become more mainstream, that maybe the kind of, you know, silver bullet uh, capabilities are, you know, folks who have embedded expertise or relationships, you know, rather than folks who, you know, are amazing engineers, um, and that it really requires an openness to go and figure out what is founder market fit for that individual opportunity, for that individual industry, rather than us having a pre, uh, predisposition to a certain type of founder profile, which, you know, I think uh, not every venture firm is guilty of this, but, you know, certainly uh, pattern recognition is reinforced, uh, whether, uh, you know, it's known or implicit uh, to back founders and businesses that, you know, have a look and feel of what's been successful in the past. And it could be that those types of businesses and those type of founders continue to be successful moving forward. But we think that there's an opportunity to work with, you know, founders uh, and businesses that don't fit those, uh, you know, profiles uh, and really lean in on anti-pattern recognition and have a little bit more nuance around that. And that's folks like Kabir Sayed from Risk Match or, you know, Shannon Mike from RigUp who were, you know, 
definitely, you know, non-prototypical founders when they were starting those companies and both went on to have great success. Totally. And, and, and a couple more Car- Carlotta questions. So one is I'm curious how her framework helps you understand sort of the macro uh, environment uh, and, and, and how that affects your lens as a, as a venture capitalist in terms of timing. And then also, you know, another thing she talks about right now is that um, we're at the point where we need uh, government to, to step in. Um, and, uh, you know, every 20, 30 years, the beginning of every new revolution, you need markets to sort of filter out and then you need government to step in um, and sort of, you know, pick up the pieces a little bit in terms of what hasn't been working. I'm, I'm curious if, if how you think about that as a as lens of investor in terms of new businesses that, that, that can enable. Yeah. So, so I think there's kind of two, two pieces of that one, you know, thinking about macro and where we are in the cycle and, and, and then two, you know, the, the government and societal kind of, you know, pushback around some of these economic gains and, you know, I'll tackle, tackle the first, and, uh, you know, first. And, and, you know, I think it, it's really, really hard to predict, you know, where we're, where we are at in the cycle. And I think, um, you know, Carlotta puts down 1971 as kind of the big bang moment for this movement and which would make, you know, this kind of run up to the turning point, the longest, installation phase that we've seen by far. Uh, I actually kind of push back a little bit on that. I think the Big Bang moment wasn't a mass production of the microprocessor in 1971. I think it was the birth of the World Wide Web in 1989, which, you know, when we think about that, we're 30 years into, you know, basically the internet seeing that take off. Um, obviously, there were earlier inter- iterations uh, of the internet before that out of, um, you know, DARPA and so forth. But, you know, I think 1989, you know, that's, that's really where we're seeing the kind of the birth of consumer, uh, you know, internet. And we're 30 years in that cycle. And that seems like a, you know, kind of right, right size timing, uh, you know, based on her theories. You know, the thing that scares me, and it's exciting at the same time is, you know, what if we're dealing with something that, you know, it's not these cycles happening every 60 years. That the speed of information, the speed of society, the speed of communication that we have with each other uh, is accelerating so much that we're going to see new cycles uh, on top of each other on, you know, every 10 to 15 years. You know, there's a case to be made that, you know, we had a, you know, the birth of the computing age, and then we have the birth of the information age with the internet. And, you know, we could say we're going to have the birth of, you know, AI and then quantum and blockchain or whatever it is. Uh, I think the speed of innovation is happening at such a fast rate because the birth of the internet was this truly fundamental thing uh, that created more information than society had ever dealt with before. So, you know, I think that creates some scary conditions where, you know, we're going to have a lot of winner take all dynamics um, that there probably is more need for regulation in the market than there may have been. Uh, but, you know, we as consumers also need, 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 need to police that. Uh, but it also means that we have the chance for, you know, the greatest levels of economic prosperity if we do that appropriately. So um, the larger question that we have is, is this the, you know, a minor turning point? Is this going to be, uh, you know, a quick and, you know, relatively, uh, you know, painless one, or are we going to go and, uh, you know, potentially have something that's as catastrophic as, you know, the Great Depression and World War II. And, you know, uh, that's way above my pay grade to determine whether we're there or not. Um, but, you know, I do like to, you know, go back to kind of the value investing school of thought and, you know, uh, follow what Howard Mark says, where you know, you, we can 
we can't really time the cycle and know, you know, when exactly the market's going to turn. Uh, but we do know uh, where the pendulum is swinging. And it feels that the pendulum has you know, swung pretty far in one direction uh, that, you know, makes us all need to have a certain level of cautiousness moving forward into 2020. And I think that's, you know, felt pretty pervasively by, you know, a lot uh, in, in, in the venture ecosystem. There's a lot of opportunity, but there's a lot of risk at, you know, at play. And, you know, I think that's how we're seeing the, the macro market, you know, in, in our firm. We, we don't know when it's going to happen, but, you know, you can't have a bull run that goes this long, you know, without having, you know, at least some type of pullback, uh, you know, at some point. And the reality is, I think, some of the societal tension pieces, they have the chance to potentially be something much bigger than just an economic recession. Uh, and I think we're seeing that play out in the political sphere a little bit. Totally. And I'm curious if there are any other takeaways that, that if, if all venture capitalists had read and familiar with Carlotta's work, you'd expect the industry to have as a whole. Maybe another way of asking is a slightly different question is, you know, earlier I asked you sort of what would be good investments 10 years ago or now that wouldn't be 10 years ago how might you answer that in 10 years from now? <laughs> like what are examples of, of things that if, if we follow the framework, you know, 10 years from now or, or 20 years from now might, might be when we're in the next phase might, might be uh, better investments that today would be premature. So I'll do a little bit of a cop out here and forgive me for that. I, I actually think it's less so about, you know, uh, the type of investment. I think it's actually the way how they're operated. So, you know, we talk about distribution of gains and I think, you know, Carlotta is is, is very uh, um, insistent on kind of society pulling itself together and partnering with government to think about the distribution of those gains. Um, you know, as I look at companies and some of the tech lashback we're seeing, is because the economic gains have not been distributed, you know, appropriately. So I think the way that society will move forward and the industry will be moving forward is, you know, maybe a little bit less so to you know, winner take all or, you know, compensation structures where, you know, all the economics are associated with, you know, a few at the top to much more distributed gains, you know, within those companies and to the stakeholders that are that. And I don't think that's happening yet today. Uh, and part of that is probably, you know, lack of true, you know, transparency on how the economics of equity, you know, work for startup employees and so forth. Uh, but uh, I think that's going to be where the market moves moving forward and making sure that if, you know, a company is successful, uh, there's lots of success, you know, had by, you know, the employees who made that possible as well as the financiers of those companies. Um, you know, no problem with people making money, uh, just making sure that, you know, there, there's, uh, you know, uh, every, everyone gets their chance to participate in that success. And I do think that we're going to see more companies focus on stakeholder enablement um, and that's going to be you know a lot around the future of work and you know platform companies that can go and lead to much better economic results for the individuals on those platforms uh, over the status quo and I think that's we're already seeing pieces of that in you know labor marketplaces that are finding ways to enable people to have autonomy over their lives enable them to have better benefits than the incumbents ever, you know, would, would enable them, enable them to have, uh, you know, higher uh, take-home pay than, you know, what they would have otherwise, because, you know, frankly, there's a lot of people who have been economically displaced over the course of the last decade that, uh, you know, are certainly leading to some of the lashback that we're seeing in, uh, in today's market. 
totally. And if just taking to some of the examples that you're, you're, you've, you do, you put on your, your website, uh, one of them is the, uh, is Amazon and helping, uh, ex, you know, brands compete in the, in the age of, uh, of Amazon or enabling brands. Uh, what's something you're excited about there? So, um, you know, this has been a, a big hypothesis for, uh, for us as a firm. There's no company that I find more exciting, more scary than Amazon. Uh, you know, uh, I think Jeff Bezos will go down as, you know, uh, potentially the best business mind of all time. Uh, and, you know, it's, it, it's incredible what he's done in the consolidation of market power and, you know, building the logistics network and density. What he's done is just frankly changed the way that we think about uh, consumer products, thanks to the, uh, and how we uh, absorb them on a day-to-day basis. And with that, there's a lot of fallout. So, you know, obviously kind of the legacy world of retail, you know, is it going to work? You know, that needs to be completely transformed. And, you know, we believe that there's, you know, some opportunities for what we call is the, you know, rebirth of retail. And, you know, we have a company that, that, that uh, we've partnered with in that space called, you know, Leap Retail that owns, operates, and, managed source for third-party brands that frankly has economics better than any retailer that we can see in the public or private market sphere uh, because it's been able to compress the value chain and, you know, innovate on the business model and make sure there's better alignment to uh, have these brands working successfully uh, rather than just kind of being a storefront. Uh, and, you know, we also think that there's kind of a retrenchment in core competencies required in what we call the unbundling of retail. So we look at folks who have really struggled uh, to compete in this Amazon age, uh, you know, as consumers want products, you know, next day, not three weeks from now, and, you know, maybe don't want to go to a mall and, uh, you know, uh, you know, Middlesex, New Jersey, that they just would rather have it delivered. Uh, you know, the folks who have really struggled making that transition have been folks who have been both brands and retailers at the same time. Uh, and there's a few exceptions. Obviously, Nike just the other day decided that it wasn't going to sell on Amazon anymore and is kind of retrenching on this competency. And maybe they're ones who are big enough to do that. But then there's other companies like J. Crew that you know had fine brands, uh, but really struggled to uh, focus on you know are they a brand or are they a retailer? And the concept of being a great product development company, uh, being a great digital company being someone who understands your backend supply chain and can operate with the flexibility of someone like Allbirds or Outdoor Voices or any of these new DTC uh, oriented startups versus someone who can go and manage, you know, all the competencies of retail, which is not focused on top line growth as much as it is on cost management. You look at what Amazon has, has you know, done so, so successfully it's, you know, managing CapEx deployment probably better than any institution ever has uh, in the history of time, uh, being scrupulous on cost management, you know, being able to hit economies of scale, being able to manage distributed workforces. You know, these are things that aren't exactly, uh, you know, top of mind when you're thinking about, uh, you know, great product experiences or the way that a startup operates, uh, which is the reason why we, we, we think that there needs to be a permanent kind of uh, unbundling of those two competencies. Uh, we also think that there's a lot of innovative business models out there that uh, you know are frankly being kind of created through aspects of the trade war and other things that we're seeing happening in the global economy. Uh, we've been fascinated with business models like Lee and Fung, which is a you know $30 billion Hong Kong-based uh, product development company. And you know, uh, we we're fortunate to back a company called Pattern Brands. Uh, from the founders of Gin Lane, 
that's, you know, been able to take that kind of multi-product holding studio concept, you know, fast manufacturing and being able to spin up new product uh, uh, consumer categories that we're really, really excited about as well. Totally. The, uh, I want to close by, uh, by going into a few other areas you're, you're excited about, and I'll, I'll name them and feel free to go into uh, any ones where you're, you're most excited or, or uh, as appropriate. So, so one is, uh, you mentioned quality care for families. I assume you mean elder care there. Um, you, you mentioned uh, bending the risk curve for insurance. Uh, and then you also mentioned uh, solving uh, you know, some of uh, society's uh, greatest problems. So I'll let you pick any or, or all of the ones that you want to uh, speak to. Yeah. And, and for us, there's kind of four core themes that we're really anchored in today. And, you know, a big part of our firm, uh, you know, hypothesis is, is thinking through constant catalysts that are creating these permanent um, changes in the market. Um, so there's always new categories that we're looking at and, you know, can talk about some of those things that we're, that we're thinking about. But, you know, the four major areas that, that we look at ourselves and say, wow, uh, there's going to be multiple multi-billion dollar companies creating these categories, you know, given the, you know, impact and importance that they have in society and industry, uh, as well as uh, the degree of change that we're seeing. And those four categories today are kind of transportation logistics, uh, insurance, uh, the, the, the retail in the age of Amazon, um, and lastly, the care economy. And care economy is certainly um, senior living is a part of that, but child care is also uh, a huge part of that. So if you look at uh, the what what the Department of Health and Human Services recommends families to bud, uh, budget for for childcare, it's seven percent of their income. If you look at a place like Boston, uh, uh, to be able to afford childcare as a uh, millennial parent in, in Boston, uh, the average cost of childcare is seventy-seven percent of pre-tax. Uh, median millennial income. So you're literally looking at a case where uh, the cost escalation of childcare is 11x of what the government, you know, had recommended as part of when it came up with these policies a long time ago. So we're seeing rampant inflation in things like senior living and childcare. And we're also seeing what we believe is going to be a huge demographic wave of, you know, births as well as people kind of uh, transitioning into senior living homes. It's uh, most folks know that you know one of the largest uh, age demographics in society is that you know 60 to 65 to 70 year old cohort of uh, of boomers and you know there's a lot of reasons why uh, you know we get a little concerned about the future of senior living as we look at you know what's happening on cost of rising healthcare and you know declining social security benefits and the fact that these individuals may be uh, living longer but also the fact that you know it used to be that a lot of these individuals could go and you know, live with their kids, that's simply not going to happen uh, in an environment where people are increasingly living in cities. And it's just very, very difficult uh, for folks to, you know, move their parents into, you know, a two bedroom apartment, especially given how expensive it is to live in cities. So, you know, there's a level of displacement that's going to happen there and a bunch of things need to get figured out. And, you know, there's horror stories about what we're seeing in the senior living market that, you know, uh, make us true believers that there needs to be a lot of accountability, accessibility, and improvements in affordability in that world. But we're seeing a lot of those same, um, you know, secular trends play out in childcare, where, you know, you used to be able that, that you could rely on your parents uh, to, to provide helping in childcare. There's something called the dependency ratio in that, in that industry, uh, where, you know, we now have people living further away from their parents than ever before. Uh, we're also seeing 
a lot of advancements in fertility technology that are you know, making it so that people are having children later on in life. And that's a great thing, but it's also a necessary thing that came out of the fact that a lot of folks in you know, my age demographic and uh, the folks who are a little bit younger than me you know, are children of the recession. That, you know, living in urban environments, we just didn't have uh, the bank accounts build up to actually be able to afford kids, especially when it costs you $40,000 uh, to be able to afford childcare. So, you know, as we look at that and seeing the largest cohort of Americans right now being the 25 to 30 year old group, we actually just think that there's going to be a huge boon in uh, uh, births in the coming years. And we could be wrong about that. But uh, if, it, if that does indeed happen, we have nowhere near the amount of supply that we need for childcare, uh, and we're going to see continued cost escalation, which you know we start to deal with a lot of really, really uh, tricky questions as a society. Uh, if childcare costs start going to fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year, and how that's going to have impacts on individuals and their willingness to work, uh, especially when you're paying close to forty, fifty percent tax rates uh, in a lot of these urban environments. So you know we think a lot needs to be figured out there. We have some theses. We've backed one company in the senior living industry that we haven't announced that we're incredibly excited about that does really, um, you know, address uh, accessibility, affordability, and accountability in the senior living industry. And, uh, you know, we're looking to back more within senior living and childcare verticals. Totally. Uh, it makes it makes a ton of sense, and we, we've talked a bit about uh, insurance, and we talked a bit about uh, the you know brands in the age of Amazon. Do you want to uh, say speak anything to uh, where you're most excited to invest in uh, trucking logistics? Yeah, so uh, I think one one of the areas that we get really excited about in the trucking world is is just enablement of all the independent owners and operators. So. You know, um, you know, 3.3 million, you know, truck drivers out there, uh, you know, the average truck drivers in their late 50s, you know, the, the median one doesn't have a college education, uh, take home pay is extremely low. And these folks work really, really, really hard. Um, you know, so as we go and start thinking about things like autonomous vehicles, which, you know, is a whole nother conversation, you have 3 million Americans who, you know, are working their butts off, are economically displaced. Um, and when it comes to financial products as well as technology products, they just can't compete, um, you know, despite their hardest efforts with, you know, the larger scale trucking carriers out there. Uh, but there's a whole suite of new technology tools that are coming to market, whether it's digital freight brokerages and, you know, new advanced software systems that, I kid you not, you know, uh, the average trucker today, you know, isn't, you know, getting access to modernized software. They're still calling up brokers on the phone. Uh, they're still operating on pen and pa paper. They're still going to, you know, physical load boards at, uh, um, you know, dispatching stations and way stations to, to go and get loads. And, you know, there's a lot of economic opportunity uh, uh, that can be had there, both in, uh, making sure that those drivers are more efficient with their trucks, you know, reducing accident rates and, and improving operations on those trucks, uh, reducing the amount of dead hauls, which is, uh, you know, the amount of time that, that trucks are uh, driving empty, um, and also just making it so that these drivers get, you know, a much better shake where uh, you can look at things like insurance. And sometimes we're lucky enough that, you know, two areas that we have competency in, uh, collide, uh, the average independent owner operator probably pays about 60% more for their insurance than uh, the cost per truck of a 
you know, larger, large to mid-sized trucking carrier. Uh, if you look at what they pay for working capital rates, you know, probably about 60 to 70% higher. You look at, you know, leasing, you know, a lot of these folks are going and taking out multiple credit cards, you know, just to be able to, you know, be able to afford their first truck and then paying credit card payments, you know, to do that. So, you know, we see a tremendous uh, amount of opportunity in enabling, you know, this group of several million several million Americans um, to, you know, create uh, better economic conditions for themselves. And, uh, you know, that's a pretty big market when you're talking about folks who, uh, um, you know, represent, you know, about 700 billion of economic value. If you can be the ones that enable them, you're going to be able to have a great business. Yeah. I, I, that's, that's awesome. Uh, in insurance, uh, uh, drug logistics, elder care and, um, uh, brands and obviously there's more spaces, but especially if you're building there, do make sure to, uh, to, to reach out to, to Rick and, uh, and Rich, who I've also been lucky to, to work with. Uh, Rick, thank you so much for, for a great episode. My guest today has been Rick Zulo of uh, Equal uh, Ventures. Uh, Rick, thank you for, for coming on. Again, thanks for having me, and you have a good one. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 